show had awakened to a world in crisis. The economy was in a state of deep neglect. A great dust bowl had ravaged food supplies, and the number one movie in the country was called Ass. Ladies and gentlemen of the galactic brainiac tick-tick states, we present... Idiocracy. A movie that is now not five, not ten, but fifteen slamming years old. Happy anniversary to you too, Jonah. A comedy about dystopian future where the president is a former pro wrestler. The environment is tapped out and capitalism has given America a spike pile driver that's illegal. Jonah, this sounds upsettingly familiar. Fuck yeah, it does! Does it make you feel sad? Does it make you feel blue? A little, yeah. It makes me feel like there's no point in making satire anymore. Now expand on that, asshole! Because Idiocracy was so good, it ruined all future political comedy. No one can top it. This is Galaxy Brains, and today, the anniversary of... Oh boy, uh, Kylie, <clears throat> that's the voice is too much. Can you, can you give me a lozenge, maybe some tea with a slice of lemon? Mm. Thank you. Today we are talking Idiocracy with my old pal, comedian, and motherfucking Oscar-nominated screenwriter, Kumail Nanjiani. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the podcast where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. I'm Dave Schilling. And I'm Jonah Ray. Welcome to Costco. I love you. And each week on the show, we start with the logical brain, advance to the critical brain, Question everything with the interrogation brain, and of course, arrive at the blessed state of the galaxy brain. Today our guest is comedian, writer, and one of the stars of the upcoming Marvel film The Eternals, Kumail Nanjiani, and we are hopping in our time machine and zooming back a quick 15 years for the anniversary of a satirical classic and unintentional documentary, Idiocracy. Oh, Dave, it looks pretty tight in that pod, but I think I can fit in if you just scooch, just hey, scooch down. Come on, I'm just gonna, hey. I'm just gonna try and hop back. Stop. I, I, what? Just, just. I, we are not. No, we are not sharing a pod. All right, fine. Get out. Fine. Okay. Well, I'm gonna get in my own pod. Just don't forget to wake me up this time, okay? We have clearly not started thinking critically yet on this show, so let's ease into the mental maze with this week's edition of Logic Brain. <laughs> Jonah, wake up. <sighs> oh. Oh, Dave, is it 2006? Well, I should go find a younger me and tell myself to start a boy band called BTS. I think we could be really big. I just got to remember those songs. We've got other things to do in 2006, Jonah, like talk about Idiocracy, a biting satire from the creator of Office Space, Beavis and Butthead, and Silicon Valley, Mike Judge. You know, if we stayed here in 2006, it'd be pretty much impossible to see Idiocracy. The film was originally supposed to come out in 2005, but was delayed over a year. And when it was finally released, it only screened in 130 theaters before just being dumped onto home video. I was actually able to see it. I saw the one screening at the Arclight in Hollywood. That's amazing. I I, I didn't even know it came out when it came out. It wasn't until it came out on on video that I, I even had a clue that it existed. 
As much as audiences today might refer to Idiocracy as a classic, it was pretty much discarded by 20th Century Fox. The general consensus is that the reason the movie was buried by the studio is because of poor test screenings. When you rewatch the film, you can kind of see why. The portrait Mike Judge paints of American culture is crass, sexist, and hostile to curiosity. In the film, Luke Wilson plays Joe Bowers, a guy so average, the writers named him Joe, who was selected to test a U.S. military cryogenics program. When Joe wakes up 500 years into the future, the United States is a barren wasteland ruled by a professional wrestler named Dwayne Elizondo Mountain Dew Herbert Camacho. The most popular show on TV is called Ow My Balls. Starbucks stopped serving coffee and started selling blowjobs. Farmers water their crops with an energy drink called Brondo. It's what plants crave, Dave. But in short, life is hell. But for Joe, the upside is now he is the smartest man on earth. He becomes President Camacho's Secretary of the Interior, which he has no clue what that means, and offers the brilliant idea of saving the Dust Bowl situation they're in with watering the crops with actual water since Brondo has electrolytes and electrolytes is salt and it was just killing the plants. Plants don't need no electrolytes. Okay. But it's what plants crave is what they think. Because they're dumb, you see? You see? Do you see? Uh, so he's trying to find a time machine that will take him and his companion Rita, played by Maya Rudolph. Ooh, she's a sex worker in this movie, and we'll get into that later. They're going to go back to 2005 if they can find this time machine. Of course, the time machine ends up being just an abandoned amusement park ride, and Joe and Rita stay in the future, hoping to repopulate the planet with smart people. It's sort of almost kind of a happy ending, since it gives a human race a glimmer of hope. Idiocracy predicted a coarsening of political discourse, but is that a good thing? Let's decide in a segment we call Critical Brain. So this was Mike Judge's follow-up to Office Space, which was also a bomb in the uh, box office sense. Yeah. It became a cult movie after a while. So this was like, okay, now that everyone knows that Office Space is good, he's coming out with this other commentary. Before he was commentating on office life and you know the, the hamster wheel of capitalism, and now he's going to take a bigger swing at America and our dumbing down of culture. Yeah, this is a, a movie that I'm sure got greenlit because of the success of Office Space on DVD. And for those of you who are younger listening to the show that don't remember all this stuff, when this movie came out, it was kind of in the shadow of 9-11 and, and Afghanistan and the Iraq War. Our president was dumb. We thought we had the dumbest president of all time. And <laughs> literally, <laughs> we were like, it can't get worse than this, right? And then, of course, it does. How did it get worse than that? Anyway, so much stuff was happening that made people feel like we were falling apart and we were getting stupider. Idiocracy took a while to really percolate into the culture, but by the time it did, people were starting to talk about this like it was a shot from heaven <laughs> explaining what we shouldn't do. It was so spot on. It seems so ridiculous. And then like little by little, every year there's something else came to be. And like, you know, the idea of like a wrestler uh, becoming president isn't that far off. I mean, Ronald Reagan was a dumb actor and then became president. So that wasn't the craziest idea. I remember seeing it and just thinking it was just like, like a great kind of like sketch concept in a movie. I was like very, very delighted by it. But then as years went on, I remember even during like the Obama administration, maybe this was in like 2008 or nine, like some guy, it wasn't South Carolina, like it happens in Idiocracy, but it was North Carolina where like a guy yelled out, you lie. Immediately when I heard that in the news, I was just like, oh, that's just, it's like, it's like, you suck, uh, South Carolina, what's up? Everything's starting to happen. I know she's barren with all that starving bullshit. 
but I got a solution. That's what you said last time, dipshit. I got a solution. You're a dick. South Carolina, what's up? <laughs> Some of the dialogue is, it's like transcribed from a Joe Rogan podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's so depressing. Another thing this movie uh, makes fun of really well is product placement, while also having a ton of product placement, which is kind of like Josie and the Pussycats, which we talked about a few months ago. That's a movie that, similarly to Idiocracy, was a really potent, edgy satire of consumerism that people didn't see in theaters. So in this movie, you've got the Carl's Jr. machine in the middle of this dystopian downtown that spits out big-ass fries. Carl's Jr., fuck you, I'm eating. All these like things that were really close to what actually was going on at Carl's Jr. at the time. Do you remember those commercials? Don't bother me. I'm eating. Yes. Sexy woman in a bikini eats a giant burger and spills ketchup and mayonnaise on her chest. And it's just like. Yeah, Paris Hilton was one of the Carl's Jr. girls. Exactly. It was so silly and brazen in how exploitative it was. And so Carl's Jr. even being like, oh, okay, well, I guess, yeah. We'll be in this movie. Even in the background, I never even noticed until the most recent time I watched it, there's a Jack in the Box logo, but it just says Jack in a box, like I-N-U-H box. <laughs> yeah. It's nonstop, like, uh, you know, like American Express with like three X's. Yep. H&R Block also is a uh, sex shop. Yeah, at Starbucks, you don't get coffee, you get hand jobs. Man, I could really go for a Starbucks, you know? Yeah, well, I really don't think we have time for a hand job, Joe. I love the idea, too, of like just the way they baked in the Starbucks joke. You're like, well, that's such a weird thing to say. And then like, you know, was it 10 minutes later? You get to see that. Oh, yeah. Starbucks gives hand jobs now. <laughs> yeah, it's just thrown off. It's a really great way to have two jokes in one, essentially. Mm -hmm. Product placement is worse now. It's actually worse than it was in 2005 when this movie was shot. I feel like there are logos on everything. I'm inundated with brands. Yeah. No shirt or dress is without logos and branding. So everyone looks like a NASCAR. And that's the idea of like, you know, like having name brand stuff, you know, wearing like a Gap shirt that says Gap. It's like, are you really going to the Gap for t-shirts? You're going to the Gap for t-shirts and you want it to say Gap? You know, I know this is like probably a joke from the late 80s, early 90s, but it's ridiculous. Like, you know, to expand on that, I think is, is fucking brilliant. I get it. I get I don't like shirts with logos on them. I don't need people to know where I got my clothes. When it comes to my shirts, I only want people to know where I vacation to. <laughs> the Island of Kwai. <laughs> Disney World. Like just even the details of like, so streaming channels, Pluto, all that, like weren't really a thing when this movie was made. And so jokes about like the masturbation network or just, you know, Al my balls ass. Now you can go on all these streaming channels uh, like on Pluto and it's like fail TV or fail army. It's essentially the same stuff. Is this a dumpster full of stuff? You can sift through it and maybe you'll find a ham sandwich if you're lucky. But more often than not, it's going to be you licking the wrapper from a McDonald's. Yeah, it's a bummer. Hmm. It's so dark because it is a movie about the basis instincts of humanity and the selfishness of humanity. And when you truly disconnect yourself from everyone else, there is no friendship. There is no community. There is no mutual understanding. It is just, I'm trying to masturbate and you interrupted me. I love the term baiting. That's another, that's another thing I quote often. Go away, baiting. I'm baiting. The Masturbation Network, keeping America baiting for 300 years. And now sweet bang tube. 
Oh, you just go away, Baton. I got to give it up for Dax Shepard in this movie, playing the idiot lawyer. Dax Shepard, like it's a weird voice. It's, it's like it's a dumb voice. And then it's also he has like a bit of a lisp. You know, I was watching with Deanna and she's like, did he get like maybe a little prosthetic on the back of his front teeth, you know, just so he could go like, yeah, that's the like, it's like, it's so effortless how he plays that voice. Yeah. I definitely think that in order to play, <laughs> sorry, I can't, I can't not laugh when I say the character's names, Frito Pindejo, <laughs> he probably did something to, to garble his speech. It reminded me. <laughs> Of uh, Billy Bob Thornton in Sling Blade. Yeah, Marble Mouth for sure. It's super funny. This is like a ton of like really fun performances from like a lot of unknown people. There's some names in there, of course, but like... Uh, Another performance I want to mention is David Herman, who was on Mad TV. Who played Michael Bolton in uh, Office Space and was a lot of voices in uh, King of the Hill. I'm the Secretary of State. Brought to you by Carl's Jr. Why do you keep saying that? Because they pay me every time I do. It's a really good way to make money. <laughs> You're so smart, why don't you know that? David Herman is really, really, really funny in everything. Yeah, he's a really, really funny actor, and and he's very much like a, a Mike Judge actor. He's a very Texas actor. Yeah, he has that that kind of like, uh, it's dusty sadness. Yes, yes, exactly. To the Texas actor thing, there's other people in there. What's like part of the uh, Luke Wilson, Texas, Mike Judge, Wes Anderson universe, you got... Andrew Wilson, the third and probably most handsome Wilson brother of the Luke, Owen, and, you know, Wilsons. But he plays Beef Supreme at the end. And he shows up in, like, almost every one of their movies. Let's talk about Luke Wilson in this, because this was the height of his powers as a movie star. And Joe is not sure, that is. Let's call him by his real name. This is his given name, yeah. Not sure. <laughs> not sure. He's kind of a, an empty vessel. He's just there to be the guy that you follow. And Luke Wilson has that amiable kind of quality that you look for in a comedy leading man. He's just kind of like, yeah, I like that guy. He, he's all right. He speaks for me. And I was just looking for some regular water. Water? Yeah. You mean like in the toilet? What for? Uh, no, just to, to, to drink. He's a star of the movie, but he's overshadowed by the wacky performances, but that's his job. He is there for that. He's the straight person. And the role of the straight person is to just be put upon and to have like nice slow burns and nice reactions. And he does a great job with that. He's able to be super funny in this without having to really go big because the whole world is big. So it's funnier if he minimizes almost everything and is just thrown off by stuff. Like some actors in his position maybe would try too hard to upstage their fellow cast members. It's always about the scene. It's never about you. It's it's a to be a the straight character you have to put your ego aside. There's a great story about Robin Williams in The Birdcage where he was getting no laughs because he was playing the straight character in the couple with Nathan Lane in this like film with a ton of like, you know, big characters. And he was getting upset because Nathan Lane's just getting laugh after laugh and that's why he created that whole dancing sequence of where he's teaching you know, the Fosse, Fosse, Fosse. He like forced them to put that into the movie, which was a very great scene, very funny and very memorable. But like, you got to kill your ego to be able to just be like, yeah, okay, this person's going to be super funny. They're going to steal the scene and I'm just going to facilitate that. The star of a movie is not always the silliest, biggest performance. Sometimes it's the most grounded performance or the performance that allows everybody else the space to go crazy. And Luke Wilson really does that here. Surrounded by so many amazing comedians. Maya Rudolph, who we talked about earlier, is in this as Rita, the sex worker, 
and that's one of the things that that doesn't hold up so much in this movie. And, and you know, I try to make sure that when we talk about this stuff that's older, that we talk about the things that maybe aren't so great about these movies. And I think one, the language, you know, the R word is thrown out liberally, and you can argue that the use of that word is being parodied in this film. You know, I I would think about this idea a lot, and I, I you know I talked to our producer Kylie about it because she hadn't seen the film before, and there's the the idea of like. Was there another way to really show in shorthand how dumb everything got, like, and how offensive everything became and how just stupid everything is in the culture and, like, exacerbating the worst elements? And using those words, I think it's somewhat necessary to tell that story. And, and I'm not trying to say, like, you can't make that. I'm not trying to defend and be, like, a free speech guy in this situation. But, like, but there's trash everywhere the plants are killed because they're pouring Gatorade on it. <laughs> if you're writing this, everything has to make sense. Everything has to connect. Yeah. So if like the stupidest, most base people just started running the world, what would be the language? You just have to like expand and extrapolate on the dumbest person. Now let's make that dumbest person the world. And that's that's the commentary part of it. That's the satire. Were there people that maybe watched this to like just like things like, hey, he said the R word. That's super funny. It's hard to say, but I know the intention was to show how terrible these people are and how terrible this world is. Well, I mean, that's what I think we really needed to dive into is intention versus reception, right? Obviously, the intention of Mike Judge is to shine a light on where we are going and the things that we find acceptable. Did everybody catch that? <laughs> or are people just like, oh, this is cool. Yeah, yeah, This is what I laugh at. Like, I think some people might have either taken it the wrong way and just found it funny and didn't understand the real dark message behind it. Or they were so horrified by their own recognition of the things that they find funny that they reject the whole premise because it makes them feel bad. Yeah. So this movie didn't premiere in any theater in New York or San Francisco when it came out. It made 177,559 American dollars its opening weekend and in lifetime theaters it made 440,093 dollars. 11 of those dollars were mine. And uh, I'm I'm proud of that. And also, I remember going to see this on a Friday night. I remember seeing in the LA Weekly. I was like, "Oh wow, the new Mike Judge movie!" Because I'd heard about it. I'd read about it. And I remember, you know, the you know the lights are down, and then names start coming up on the screen, and you hear people clapping. I was like, "Oh, I hate seeing movies in LA. It's I hate it when people act like, oh, I know that person. Woo, whoop de doo The lights come up, and then uh, everyone that was up in that group get up, and it's Terry Crews, it's Luke Wilson, it's Justin Long, it's Mike Judge. There was no premiere for this movie, so they had to go and buy tickets to it on opening night so they could have a, like a cast screening. <laughs> oh my God. You accidentally stumbled into the premiere of the movie. That's remarkable. It's so interesting how the the world just ignored it. But it was also the studio's fault for not releasing it. And, and I think, you know, it's hard to find that perfect audience that wants this very challenging material. This is not a stupid movie. What it was is this movie that pulled the mattress up and exposed all the bedbugs of our world. And of course, that's not commercial. But this is a, a problem that movies of this nature have, is getting people to understand them. So now we have these memes and things on the internet 
where people are like, oh, yeah, Idiocracy is a documentary because this thing happened, because these politicians said this, or because this person was president, or what have you. You know, all the debates about wearing masks and taking vaccines in the entire discourse around COVID, people keep referencing this movie because it struck a nerve. And I think because this movie was so good at expressing its point later on for people who've had time to marinate with it, you can't really do satire anymore, Jonah. And this comes from somebody who used to write political humor for a living. I think it's over. I think it's done. I think Idiocracy is really the best we could do. Okay, but what about all these, you know, late night shows doing political jokes? The debt they owe to Idiocracy is pretty high. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree. But like, what about the fact that the vast majority of satire comes from straight white male writers? Isn't there a vast array of POC, LGBTQ, and female talent just waiting for their chance to get their perspective across? Z-Way and Desus and Mero and Amber Ruffin, and the list goes on and on. Like, there's a ton of them. Idiocracy is a great film, but I don't think it's the end of satire. <laughs> Jonah, you're right, but I feel... Uh, like you're about to transcend to a higher plane of existence, Dave? No, Oh. What? This has never happened, but whoa, what's that sound? That's my butt. Well, guys, that's it for episode of today. But next event, we talk Paw Patrol the movie and tell you guys why cartoons are for fucking babies and shit. Hey, hey, Dave, hey, hey, look at this shiny metal ball. A ball! Go get it. Go get it, Dave. Go on, get it. Get it, Dave. Oh, my God, a ball. All right, Dave's going to go have the time of his life with that silver ball. But when we come back, we'll be joined by my old pal, Kumail Nanjiani, to talk about idiocracy, Mike Judge, and the future of satire. No, no, Dave, no. Don't swallow. No swallow the ball. It tastes so cold. God, they're going to have to pump his stomach again. Welcome back to Galaxy Brains. Our time machine has safely deposited us back in 2021. The best year of all time! Boy, is it good to be home. Yeah, I really miss the year 2021. No way I would ever want to leave again. This is perfect. Waiting for us in the present is this week's guest, actor and comedian Kumail Nanjiani, who will reminisce with us about idiocracy and hopefully help answer the burning question of whether or not satire can survive the 21st century. Kumail, thanks for stifling your burning hatred of Jonah to join us on the show today. I'm pretending he's not here. <laughs> That's what I usually do. That's how I get through this this podcast every week. That's what made our show the meltdown work. <laughs> he just pretended he wasn't there and he, and he just barreled through and got laughs. Yeah, it's like the opposite of the rabbit in that movie. With Harvey? Harvey. Yeah, everybody sees Harvey, but he doesn't. <laughs> I'm a Snuffleupagus is really what it is. There it is, yes. First of all, Kumail, when did you initially see Idiocracy? Because this was a movie that was pretty much impossible to see. The only person I know who saw it in a theater is actually Jonah. I saw it in the theater. I was a big fan of Mike Judge's. I love Beavis and Butthead, but I really, really love Office Space. And I remember I went to go see it in Chicago on Clark Street at the like indie movie theater. And on there to buy tickets, the movie was called Untitled Mike Judge Project. That's how 
shitty the release was. That's ridiculous. Who let that happen? Because like when I, when I saw it in the the ad in the LA Weekly, it said Mike Judge's idiocracy. But that's crazy that the theater wouldn't even bother putting the title in. Yeah, even the theater. Because I, I remember I had to call the number to like get tickets and it said all these movies and then untitled Mike Judge Project. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah. So I saw it in the theaters right when it came out, opening weekend. That's actually more work for the marquee person. They had to put up all those extra letters. <laughs> if you just do idiocracy, your job's over in like an hour. At the time that the movie came out, did you ever anticipate that it would be so resonant that people would be making this comment that it is a quote-unquote documentary? I honestly did not. I thought that it was very exaggerated. I was like, oh, man, that's really funny. So happy we don't live in that world. And um, (laughs) I had no idea how prescient it was going to be. I mean... Now people are always like, oh, Idiocracy was a documentary. Idiocracy was a documentary. And I did not think we would <laughs> end up here. <laughs> well, that's that's like almost one of the funniest parts in the intro is um, the narrator saying, we thought we would be living in this amazing utopia. And uh, you see that kind of painting of white bearded guy in this futuristic world. And then it zooms out and it's just the, uh, people in line for a ride. <laughs> It's like the cover of an Isaac Asimov novel. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then it's like, oh, wait, this, they're just like eating turkey legs at some theme park. Does it play differently now that we know how bad it can get? Or is it better because of the catharsis of watching a movie during a moment like this in history? For me, it was definitely harder. It felt, I just felt (laughs) a lot more bummed out because I hadn't seen it in a long time. I loved it. I laughed so much. Emily would walk in and out. And it was the movie was actually even better than I remembered it in terms of being a movie. Like I thought of it as like these really funny jokes and moments and an amazing world. But watching it now, I was like, oh, this is actually a really good movie with a great story. All the beats really work. The characters really work. But... It did bum me out to watch it and know, you know, uh, this is pretty close to where we are. <laughs> we don't quite have Starbucks handing out hand jobs, but we're we're getting there. That was maybe the one good thing of that futuristic world, huh? Full release lattes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got to work with Mike Judge on Silicon Valley. What is his approach to satire and why is it so successful? Why is he able to to tap into these really resonant themes across multiple different genres. Have you ever figured out what the secret sauce is? He just has a really strong anti-authority streak. And he just thinks that authority is really funny. It's weird, you know, when you watch his stuff, you think that his animating emotion might be anger, but it's not. He really thinks this stuff is so stupid. And, and you know, one of my favorite jokes is, welcome to Costco. I love you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And to me, that's like perfect Mike Judge because it really gets to how corporations try and be your friends. And people have this brand loyalty too. Like if you go like on Twitter now, people feel like a kinship with these massive corporations. It's, it's really fucking bizarre. And it's gotten so much worse since then. Mike is just really good, I think, at figuring out how people interact with bad systems. Like, that's what Silicon Valley is, right? It's a really bad, crazy system, and there are people stuck within it. His approach, I think, is really understanding the big corporate systems and having empathy for the people that are stuck in them. I think that's the secret sauce, as you say. That's something that he shares with Charlie Brooker, who also is, I think, one of the better satirists of his time. 
that empathy, but also that kind of, not anger, but you're bemused by this. You're like, why is this like this? You're asking the question. And it's it's not a, an, it's, I don't think satire is an angry thing. There's this perception that, oh, you got to be really upset, pissed off to be a good satirical comedian or writer. There has to be a level of condescension though, right? Sure. If you do parody, you have to love the thing you're going to parody. If you don't, it shows and it comes off mean. With satire, you have to have a distaste for it. you. You can't. You can't ultimately love it in the end. Right. Yeah. You can, you can't be a fan of the thing that you're satirizing. Then it's just it's homage and it's not. There's no bite to it. I think you're absolutely right, Gemma. I guess one of the biggest challenges of satire is actually getting your point across and people understanding what you're trying to say. How do you keep satire funny and interesting and ex- exciting and entertaining while also making sure that your audience doesn't completely misinterpret what you're trying to say? You know, I've thought about this a lot before, and I think I've landed on it's not the responsibility of the artist to make sure that the audience gets it. I think all you can do is, if you're making satire, is make great satire, make your points, do the best you can. And ultimately, it's up to the audience to get it or not. Great example is Fight Club. Like People watched that movie and thought, oh, I should join the Fight Club when that's exactly the opposite of the point of the movie. I used to get upset at satire that was very easy to misinterpret and support the bad thing that the piece of art was satirizing. But but now I feel like, you know, it's sort of the responsibility of the people to understand it. And if they don't understand it, there's really only so much the artist can do. I agree with that. I just, I think part of my fear is seeing the world become more like the movie we're talking about today. (laughs) And because of that, more people are misinterpreting things. Isn't that like, you know, the big argument with like Rage Against the Machine? The people who ultimately embraced it on a large scale embraced it for the wrong reasons. They just thought it was violent music. Case in point is a lady wearing, you know, an American flag shirt, waving a Trump flag in support of cops, singing along to the song, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. (laughs) Yeah. I think you've missed the point of who uh, the machine is and where you should direct that rage. (laughs) Jonah, your point is well taken. I feel that way about Star Trek. I love Star Trek. I have loved Star Trek my entire life, basically, you know, my entire conscious life. And it was very influential on my perception of the world and the way that you treat people and and what the future should look like. And there are people that say they love Star Trek and are completely against every value system within the show. Why are you saying you like Star Trek? Is it just because you think William Shatner's cool? Like, well, you have totally missed the point of this show that is about their money not existing and everybody working together to solve problems. It just, it bums me out so much. I think that's like sort of a, one of the big things I've learned is I was like, oh, art can change people's minds. And I still have to believe it can. Otherwise, what's the point? But there are so many people exactly like that who will love something and still not internalize the lessons of that thing. Like, it's shocking to me that people love Star Trek and are against, like, interracial relationships. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's in an episode. It's the first interracial kiss of all time on television. Speaking of changing the world through art and comedy, what are some things that you've recently watched or read, or maybe not even recently, that you felt like really did make a difference, that showed the power of humor in enacting change in the real world. Oh, wow. That's a good question. Jonah, have you seen anything? It's going to sound cheesy, but I I do see people kind of reacting that way to Ted Lasso. Just this idea that a show could be 
super funny, but also very positive in its humor and can, it can show people that you don't have to be mean to be funny. And I think that's a very subtle, great message that, that is given in that show. We just started watching season two, but I feel like there's this new, there's a contingent of very loud people who evaluate something based on how close it is to what they predict is going to happen in their head and how much it supports their belief system. So they're not evaluating stuff based on whether it's good or not. It's based on whether or not it agrees with them. And I think some of the people who were upset about this new season of Ted Lasso just People don't evaluate, and again, I'm, this is generalizing, but I'm saying there's a small group of people who don't evaluate story or characters. They don't understand the difference between a character saying something and the writer saying something. Sometimes a character says something that's the opposite of what the writer is saying. Like I've seen stuff where people will quote something a bad guy says, and they'll be like, how can this movie say this? Well, well the movie's not saying that. The movie's saying the opposite. This is the bad guy saying that. And that's a huge thing to even idiocracy is the words that are used in this movie are, uh, you know, very offensive in today's standards. And yes. like, and the movie's not even that old. But that's the thing is, it's like, it's not Mike Judge saying that these are funny things to say. It's like, this is what idiots think is okay and funny to say. Exactly. And so we have to still, I think, with storytelling, we can't tell a hero's journey where the hero doesn't come against any adversity, any other character that, like, you know, might disagree. Like, then who, what's the point? If everything's fine, then what's the point of telling the story? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, to answer your earlier question, I would say The Good Place was something that I thought did really tackle some really gray stuff about morality and right and wrong and all that kind of stuff in a way that was really funny and entertaining. It really was a great like philosophical approach to morality while still being a sitcom. Yeah. Yeah, that's a hard thing to pull off in a sitcom is Let's talk about the meaning of life for a second, shall we? It's not a thing you see attempted very often in American television is is going that big and that uh, that heady with something that, you know, started with I Love Lucy and the Honeymooners and certainly Ted Lasso. You know, I, I feel like in this moment, having entertainment that makes people happy is kind of a good thing. <laughs> I, I can't I don't understand the people that are so upset about season two of Ted Lasso. It's a TV show. It made people really, really happy at a time when a lot of people are really, really, really bummed out. And I can never thumb my nose at that. And that's why I like uh, the show Letterkenny as well, because it is really a view of like true friendship and to, you know, to, to do the work and to be a good friend. And I'm not, you know, I'm not looking for morality tales and everything I watch, but, uh, but it's always nice when it's there on, uh, in a positive light. I hope you're taking notes about how to be a better friend, Jonah. Fuck off. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Is the world too ridiculous to make satire now? It seems like it's becoming harder and harder to really cut through the bullshit and tell a story that is not what the the author really means, you know, having that second layer of meaning. Is it impossible to do this now that we've had a president who is in the WWE Hall of Fame? I don't think it's impossible. I think it's very possible because, you know, as reality shifts, satire keeps shifting along with it. So, yeah, satire that you could have done 10 years ago, you can't do now. But where we are now, yeah, you could exaggerate it, skew it a little bit more. You know, it's interesting. That was an issue we had on Silicon Valley. Our show ran for six years. And in the beginning, what we were satirizing, we were exaggerating Silicon Valley, obviously. And as the show went on, 
the world of Silicon Valley had become so heightened and so crazy that we looked back and thought, oh, these earlier episodes kind of don't work as satire anymore. It kind of just works as depiction. This is what it is now. Right. But we were able to, by we, I mean, I just said the words. It was, you know, the Mike and Alec and all the writers of the show. They were able to keep exaggerating it and satirizing. It's just, it's a moving target. It just keeps shifting and you have to keep shifting along with it. Something that was made as satire 10 years ago may not read as satire now, but you could certainly make something now, I think, that that would satirize what's happening right now. Now, would people understand it and see it as satire? Uh, I don't know. There's a Steve Martin quote, I think it's in his book, Born Sending Up, where um, he was worried about comedy becoming stale. And then he realized that, well, comedy is just a distortion of what is happening. And there will always be something happening. So that is a, a testament to you do have to move along and you do have to move the, the goalpost because you have to just you have to reflect and satirize or distort what is happening to do a comedy. For, like, for instance, in Silicon Valley, this is a line that didn't make it end. Like the bad guy on the show says in a script that the plight of the rich in America is like the plight of the Jews during the Holocaust. And we were like, that's too much. Can't have it in there. And then next year, a Silicon Valley guy actually said that exact thing. So what we thought was too heightened, too unbelievable, actually ended up happening in real life. Yeah, this is this is the unfortunate cross to bear of the satirist, is eventually the world will catch up with your nightmare predictions, the black mirrors of the world, or even the Simpsons. I saw that there's talk about sending out animatronic mascots into theme parks. And of course, there's the great Itchy and Scratchy Land episode of the Simpsons, all this stuff that's that's constantly coming true is is really fascinating. On a lighter note, let me ask you, what is the profession that the next president of the United States should have besides politician? Because we've already had <laughs> we've already had a WWE Hall of Famer and a business person. We've had all manner of different things. But what profession should should grow the next president? Because in this idiocracy, of course, President Camacho is a wrestler as well. I would love for it to be a nurse, you know, someone who has compassion and who sort of who takes care of people who sort of been through. Now, I feel like all nurses have really been through a very difficult time. And I feel like that would give you some heightened sense of compassion. I would want someone who, you know, believes in science. And, uh, Completely disagree, Kamal. I am going to go with <laughs> a, a circus clown because circus clowns can juggle. And you, when you're president, you need to juggle a lot of stuff. <laughs> That's right. Uh, can I change my answer to a nurse clown? <laughs> I think we should get a horse because everybody loves horses, right? They've got great hair. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They've got good hair. That's that's what we're looking for. Good hair and a nice smile. I've seen Mr. Ed. That guy was very charming. Yeah, horses are everything you want because they're really muscular, but they have great long hair too. So it's it's everything you want. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice gams. Nice gams. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on to the show. This was an absolute pleasure I'm glad we could talk about this movie that has been so influential for so many people. Thank you for giving me an excuse to rewatch this movie. It had been so long. Kamel, last question. What happens in the end credits scene of The Eternals? I haven't seen it. I have no idea. Okay, great. I am just in the dark as you are, but I'll text you as soon as I watch it. <laughs> Dude, did you see that scene? That was awesome. <laughs> Thank you again. This was awesome, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, buddy. As you know, each week we wrap up the show with a Galaxy Brain take from one of our listeners. Here's one now from Michelle of New Brunswick, Canada. 
Hey, this is Michelle from New Brunswick, Canada. And I just wanted to point out that the next time you're watching The Lion King, really pay attention to like the the outer lewd of Circle of Life because the bass just fucking slaps. It like is. Oh, it's fantastic. Definitely check out that bass line. <laughs> a good one. <laughs> well, I mean, I I haven't thought about the bass line. I, I'm thinking about the um ba da bum ba bum dum ba dum. That's the part that I'm really getting into. I've been walking in the in the middle of the I've been walking in the No, in no, the that's of, right? that's that's a river of life. That's it's a, a river of, of life. life. That's, and walking in me. Isn't that Billy Joel? Yeah, that's Billy Joel. Oh God. Remember, uh, Billy Joel actually wrote songs for an animated movie called All Dogs Go to Heaven, starring Scott Bakula. That's right. Which was a favorite of mine. Okay, so if you want to call in, we'd love to hear your Galaxy Brain take on the baseline and various songs for movies, or next week's episode topic, the reboot quill of the horror classic Candyman. Or you can talk to us about literally anything you want, as long as it's about pop culture and not about whether or not that photo of Ric Flair on the train is real or not. Mm-hmm. Our number is 213-570-8069 and it's also listed in our show notes. Give us a call and leave a voicemail with your take. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. We'll read some of the best ones on the air, like this delightful Jim from our good friend JPA01988, who on August 12th, 2021 said, Dave and Jonah discuss movies and shows in a very thought-provoking way that ranges from fun and hilarious to deep and humanizing for not only the characters and the content, but also the people who create it. Please keep up the awesome work. Y'all read my crazy Frasier Breaks Bad take on your Suicide Squad episode, but I gotta say I like Dave's idea for Frasier more. (laughs) Also, my wife still hasn't forgiven me for subjecting her to Money Plane, but I maintain that it's pretty fun. My friend, Money Plane, not fun. It's also not a competition. You didn't have to say that you like Dave's more than mine. It's, 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 we're all here to have fun. It is a competition and you won. I'm not here to make friends. Okay. Well, our friend here who left us the comment is my friend. If he's not yours, I wouldn't worry about it, man. That's a wrap on this week's Galaxy Brains. Next week, we're probably going to say his name more than five times. And that's right. It's time for Candyman. Ah, yes. Delicious candy. My favorite is Three Musketeers. No, 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 Dave. That is not what I meant. Different candy man. Ah, yummy nougat. That pillowy soft feeling gets me every time. The candy man can, cause he makes his egg with love and makes the world taste good. Makes the world taste good. Is it too late to get Kumail back? Yes, it is, because Galaxy Brains is produced by Kylie Holloway and me, Dave Schilling. Oh, yeah. The show is engineered by Dan Turek with music from Gautam Shrikashin. Our executive producer is Matt Patches, and our developing producer is Zach Mack. Polygon's editor-in-chief is Chris Plant, and Russ Frushstick is the director of special projects. Special thanks to Andrew Melanzik, who helped create the show. Until next time, I'm Jonah. And I'm Dave. Take us home, President Camacho! President Camacho! Shut up! Shut up! Sit your monkey ass down. Chill out.